You are listening to the XX Files on CKUT 90.3 FM. It is 11.34 on Wednesday, November 22nd. And we are live in the studio. It's Jules Ghoul. We've got a very special guest with us today, Suzanne Kite, a.k.a. Kite. Um, so Kite, a.k.a. Suzanne Kite, is a... Oglala Lakota performance artist, visual artist, and composer raised in Southern California. She holds a BFA from Cal Arts in Music Composition, an MFA from Bards College's Milton Avery Graduate School, and is currently a PhD candidate at Concordia University. Her research is concerned with contemporary Lakota mythologies and epistemologies and investigates the multiplicity of mythologies existing constantly in the contemporary storytelling of the Lakota, explored through research creation, computational media, and performance practice. Recently, Kite has been developing a body interface for movement performances, carbon fiber structures, immersive video and sound installations, as well as co-running the experimental electronic imprint Unheard Records. Whoa, Suzanne, welcome. Thank you. You are so busy. <laughs> Too busy. No kidding. Um, so can you maybe first uh, tell us how you found your way to Montreal? Yeah, I was um, finishing up my MFA in New York and um, living in Los Angeles. And I, um, you know, I was invited to, you know, explore if I even I wanted to do a PhD at Concordia by Jason Lewis um, over in uh, the Abtech Initiative for Indigenous Futures lab. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I hadn't thought of it before, but I was like, oh, why not? Why not do a PhD, right? <laughs> why not? Um, can, uh, do you see any like benefits or limitations of ex- like expanding your practice um, within the institution? Um, right now, all I see are benefits because it was pretty hard in LA and um, right now um, it's much easier to like have time to think and work and stuff. Amazing. Cool. So um, your most recent work is a multimedia performance entitled Everything I Say is True. And it explores uh, Lakota mythology, epistemologies, and mapping. Uh, Can you start by telling us a little bit about this work um, and describe for us uh, what is the reasonable truth which you explore in this process? Oh, responsible truth. Oh, responsible truth. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, well, this work, I, I, it was commissioned by the uh, Walter Phillips Gallery um, in Banff, uh, and it was curated by Jacqueline Bell. And at the time, I was, I was, uh, I had a lot of questions about where my, um, where my knowledge comes from um, as like a diasporic Lakota person, because I was born in California, and my um, uh, the Lagala Lakota live in, uh, they live in South Dakota, so. 
Um, there's a lot to that piece, and it's about conspiracy and um, mystery and uh, lies and miscommunication and magic. Um, but you know, the one thing that I wanted to explore was this thing called responsible truth. Um, and that's a phrase that I've adopted from Lee Hester and Jim Cheney's paper. It's called Truth in Native American Epistemology. Amazing paper. Everyone should read it. Where they suggest that one of the main differences between like Indian ceremonial worlds and Western ceremonial worlds is the intention of these to be responsibly true, not just true or false, but responsibly true. And um, yeah, so for example, it's hard to explain responsible truth, but um, to me, it's like uh, if you listen to how the famous Lakota orator Black Elk explains how the Oglala people received their sacred white buffalo calf woman, Black Elk said, uh, this they tell, and whether it happened so or not, I do not know. But if you think about it, you can see that it is true. So it's, if you think about it, you can see that it is true. So I interpret this as um, when something um, must be true for the community, ethically it must be true, then this Western concept of truth is not the exact same as in English as it is in Lakota. Um, but, you know, this flexibility with truth obviously is dangerous and complex verbal territory these days. No kidding. Because, yeah, it's like, I mean, epistemology, how do you become, how do you know what you know? How did you get to knowing what you know? Mm-hmm. What And what is truth, right? Like, is it what scientists tell us? Is it like something that you feel inside you mm-hmm. um cool so this is obviously uh like a really big question <laughs> takes mm-hmm. a lot of exploring um also your body is implicated uh in the creation of this particular uh, artwork in a number of ways so um can you describe for us a little bit your body interface with it, which is this interactive wearable technology, um, as well as how this interface was created? Yeah, so currently this body interface, it's my, my musical instrument. It's very simple. It's uh, basically an Arduino hardware, force-sensitive resistors, accelerometer, and a radio transmitter so it can communicate with the computer. And right now it's like a sculpture and that's housed in like a fiberglass thing that I wear. Yeah, and... Um, so with this instrument, I wanted to explore mapping, mapping of my body, of territory, uh, with MIDI and sound. Um, and I w- before, uh, in my, when I was at CalArts, I was composing music with sonification, but I was like, something's missing. Um, you know, ethics is missing, po- politics is missing. Um, and, which, and so the body it was the thing that was missing. My body is the thing that listens. So, and then soon after that, I was reconnected with my grandfather and he was telling me how he hears songs. I was like, how do you hear things you've never heard before? Which I was asking how he composes um, as a ceremonial singer. And he pointed to his vocal cords. So I interpret that as he hears, hears music while singing, uh, the action of hearing and singing, remembering, improvising, channeling, all, they're all one thing at once. So I was like, I need the body involved in the conversation with my data, you know? Okay, amazing. So how does it work? So basically, uh, it's a microcontroller. It's got um, my body moves and the electronics know, the accelerometer knows that I've moved in a certain direction, just like the iPhone has an accelerometer. And that produces numbers. And then I have a patch that takes those numbers and turns them into MIDI notes. So basically, it 
it could just play the piano, just like a, key, a MIDI keyboard. But I can tell it to control video, to control sound, and I can complicate those relationships with computer programming. Amazing. And does, how does it feel? How does it feel? To be your own like MIDI controller. <laughs> it feels crazy. <laughs> it's really <laughs> intense because it depends on what I tell it to do. But, but you know, if I, it can like really amplify if I want, if I'm on stage or in a gallery and I say like, I feel, I feel uh, old and decrepit and like I'm being crushed by the weight of something I can, and I make my body feel that. And I imagine I go there, then the sound can go there with me. And it's awesome to have that relationship or be able to listen to myself. It's like all a practice and being, can I hear myself? If I, can I hear myself when I speak sort of thing? And is it, like fairly accurate <laughs> yeah I actually like it when it's less accurate um when I hear when it the computer complicates or confuses me like one time I had it set up so as I turned as I turned my body towards speakers I had four speakers around me in a room I would I was looking I wanted to point my face towards or my body towards the sound I wanted to like turn towards the speaker that I was making but every time I turned it would flip around the room really fast so I was always like losing control of where the sound was and that was cool oh my gosh no kidding okay i'm gonna put on uh just a excerpt from uh from your performance um everything i say is true and we're just gonna like get a little bit of an idea of of what this body interface sounds like beautiful so we're listening to um just uh an excerpt of the sound from uh, one of suzanne's performances everything i say is true and she's just um talking about how the way that she interacts with the sound um it, the way that that's magical and it's kind of acts like a magic trick um so i kind of want to talk a little bit more about 
magic, how that fits into your practice, um, and also what is kind of created at the intersection of um, the body, particularly the indigenous female body and technology. And if perhaps that's magic too. Yeah, um, well, I guess just about this, and I just want to say, since we're listening to her voice, um, we've got um, in the background is uh, Jessica Kenny, who's an amazing, amazing vocalist. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of pe- instrumentalists involved in that, in this tiny bit of sound that we're listening to in the background, but, um, and their magic. Uh, so, magic. I really like magic tricks, and I really like how. Um, we choose for things to be magical um, when they need to be, and that's kind of where responsible truth constantly comes in and out. Um, and I and I picked magic because um, there's like a mutual decision made to experience a performance by the audience and the and the performer. And so if I'm on stage and I do something, I do like a magic trick with my interface, like I I make the sound move around the room or I like I cue something and you can't see how I'm doing it, but you know that I'm controlling it. I could be controlling it live, I could have an assistant, it could be planned perfectly, um, but you know that's up to and there's something and I don't want to go too far into this there's something about when we we want um, Indians to be magical or native people to be magical when they not they don't necess- they're human beings and it's comp and epistemology is complex and that experience is complex but um, it's fun to it's fun to play play as play be the mag- make yourself into the magic person that people want you to be so but to, to speak to your thing about the intersection of the body and the indigenous female body, um, uh, I guess there's there's a need to like, uh, I guess I'll borrow this language from Jason Lewis um, from the Aboriginal Territories and Cyberspace. Uh, uh, and he said that, um, that we need to build capacity for technology in our indigenous communities. And this capacity I think needs to happen for Indigenous people and especially Indigenous women, because we are empowered by knowing the tools that shape our our worlds. Um, you know the these epistemol they're like epistemological protocols um, that if we if we decide um, how the technology is made, like I, my technology, my instruments, it's just like a, it's like a violin. Except when I play my violin, I didn't make that from scratch, and I didn't I don't know, and I don't control how that how that is constructed. So if I can make my instrument um, and construct the knowledges, um, then I can decide what knowledge is being created. If that makes sense. Totally. Okay, so you really like find it to be a super powerful thing to make your own instrument. Definitely. Everyone, you, it's, it's not too hard. Everyone should do it. I, I, tr- <laughs> I made a small synthesizer one time, but my solders were not very good, so it fell apart eventually, but... I'm pretty bad at soldering. <laughs> But I mean, you you must have done some soldering to make this. Oh, I get a lot of help. Yeah, the, yeah. One thing I've learned about making instruments and making tech and putting on excessively technological things is you have to have help, and a lot of people help me, which I'm really grateful for. Amazing. Um, so, also, kind of speaking about how does this kind of magic that is uh, created. Um, how does how does this kind of rub up against the idea of responsible truth? So, like, where what is um, like how do you see them working together, the magic and the truth? Yeah, yeah, I do see them working together, and I see like 
I see examples of responsible truth in like my my like most precious experiences as a Lakota person, you know, when I'm when I'm with my grandfather and and he says, you know, do you hear something? Do you do you hear this thing that could be construed as magic, but it has to be true for me because I need that experience to be to be real and and I feel that the same in performance because I, you know, I think that the audience trusts you to make something real for them that, or show show them something outside, outside what they're used to, something elsewhere, something in between. And um, I want, and art can do that. And I and I want to and I want to explore those places and show people. Um. So you like you work with kind of so like narrative epistemology mapping but um kind of all centered around your body um can you maybe talk about how you feel like your body is kind of um directly implicated in uh like in this exploration of of narrative of epistemology of 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 mapping kind of yeah so part of my experience uh, as indigenous person, it's it's like it's complicated. I was adopted. Um, my biological mother was adopted, and um, you know when she passed away, I had to find I had to like reckon with who I was, and you know I was finally had the ability to have a connection to um, what I see as like the Lakota traditional territory. But that place is it's more complicated than that. Like I don't have land there that it, was, it wasn't passed down to me, um, and. And then when I look at that space, it's a territory, it's mappable and it's experienceable. Um, but you know, knowing you know, knowing where your family is buried, like I know there's a hill where she's buried and um, that changes the entire territory for me. It changes the map. And, and I feel that like that terror, that place is part of my body. And when I'm there and I'm experiencing it, like I, in order to have knowledge of the world, you have to have a body that exists in it and it, and is, you know, consuming it and, and interacting with it and in relationship with it. So, you know, as a per, as an indigenous female with a body and, you know, I needed to implicate, I needed to implicate it and needed to make sure that it, it's hard for me. Like people I've been asked by people like, do I need to, can I perform my pieces without me in them? Can I have someone else perform them for me? And I don't, I don't know if it's, po I don't know if it's possible. It's, um, I feel like even in small pieces I create, like I did this sonar piece where you approach a sculpture of this place in Kyle, South Dakota. Um, you approach the sculpture and suddenly, you know, the mu music starts going cra crazy. It you know, rises and falls because I want, you know, I, I want other people to experience what I'm feeling, but I, yeah, my body has to be involved. You have to be there kind of all, all yeah. the time. Yeah. And I mean, there is this way that, I think we often tend not to implicate ourselves in things like the land, epistemology, mapping, you know, or like, or even narrative, you know, like, I think there's a real, um, like, Western kind of, um, like, this, like, colonial idea of that you know like the narrative has happened this like the story has been told we accept it we don't really think about how we impl are implicated in it mm -hmm. um 
So I think that that is a, like, that's really interesting and necessary to kind of be like, everybody should be a little bit more implicated in the spaces that they occupy and in the stories that they're, that they're telling or that they're listening to, or, you know, if you're believing them or not. Um, I also, uh, you're also interested in um, exploring the abandonment of linear time. So how, how does this work in your performances and in your art? Um, and how do you kind of begin to deconstruct or rearrange these ideas of uh, linear space and time? Yeah, I feel like what you were just speaking to about uh, like a, a, a known narrative, an accepted narrative, I feel like that is all involved in this idea of linear time. Um, and it's complex. And I guess, first of all, there's like, po I see this potency in using giant sexy concepts like time when talking about um, anything as indigenous person, um, people listen closely. But I guess I'm not a physicist or an elder. And I have a lot of listening myself to do. But I need to listen to my elders before I can really know what is the truth, the responsible truth. But the thing about a linear time, which I feel like is built, especially in the United States, there's this, I felt an overwhelming amount of reliance on this concept of manifest destiny. Like it is how it is and, th and that's how it's going to be forever. Um, you know, but manifest destiny, destiny relies on, you know, a beginning point and an end point in order to achieve that. So... I feel like in order for us to reorient, we must reorient our view of land. Um, we, first, we have to stop thinking about land from an aerial view because we, if we do it like that, we're doomed to think of it as ownable, as something to take from. And then we're disassociated from this reality that we do live here. Um, we live on the ground. And secondly, I think that our indigenous languages can help save us from being trapped in ways of knowing that have driven us to basically the edge of apocalypse. Because in Lakota language, tense and time are expressed very differently. And I have a suspicion that when the past and present are thought of as closer together, we know that past events do not leave us. And most importantly, if we can be less linear in our heads um, and think of things as more circular, as time as surrounding us and space as a part of us, then maybe we can start to begin to imagine places like elsewhere and in between. Oh, amazing. So... Just, yeah, again, to, like, implicate yourself, think of, like, it's, like, it's so hard, but circular, I think, is a really, like, really helpful kind of notion of, of thinking about time. And then I think, like, people are, work really well with shapes, so it's, like, okay, a line, <laughs> but, like, no, maybe it's a circle, and, yeah. like, maybe it's around you, kind of. Enmeshed, like, to think of yourself as enmeshed in something and not, and not on a speeding train headed towards... The same thing no matter what we do it's not i don't think it's like that right and this is a yeah we live in a, a kind of neoliberal society that really wants everything to be kind of on a straight line um so what do you think is what's is to be gained through thinking about space and time in a different rearrangement i think i think that we can gain i think we can gain the ability to imagine ourselves um elsewhere imagine our reimagine our bodies in relationship to things and hopefully see things as hopefully see the earth as not something we can just take from um forever and not have any 
responsibility to to ourselves and other communities and you know one thing to be you know clear is that if we just say that we're on this timeline of li this linear timeline that we can't control or go back on we can then we need to accept that history is still with us and constantly affects us and you know the events that happened in my past that you know multiple generations in the past they they mean their interconnections mean that I'm here now, just like the history of the entire continent, the entire world. There's many interlocking, interacting parts to time that create now. And if we know that they're happening right now in this moment, then we know we have the ability to change the future. I love that. Unfortunately, on the radio, we do have to conform to some time. So we have <laughs> only a very little bit of it left. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk next week, you're headed to Winnipeg, my hometown for the third annual symposium on the future imaginary. Um, what does the future imaginary mean to you? And how are you gonna, how are you gonna work with this in Winnipeg? How do you apply this to your work? So I'm very excited for Winnipeg. Um, I'm there to listen and learn and there's going to be some amazing talks and I really encourage people to look up the lineup and, you know, check out those people. Um, so the initiative for Indigenous Futures is a um, uh, is an amazing uh, group of people who are network um, all over Canada. And so, um, to me, the future imaginary is one where I exist. First of all, like in the, I hope I exist in the future, and that people like me exist in the future. And um, I really hope that other Indigenous people exist because. Uh, I think we're really necessary. Um, currently, I'm a docent in the Leonard and Bina Ellen Gallery at Concordia, where I get to talk about um, the Aboriginal territories in cyberspace and help people play games and explore the worlds we have there. And, um, you know, being in that gallery tells me that not only do other Indigenous people who work with technology exist, but they're flourishing. I didn't, I didn't know that until recently. So um, I... I believe very much um, in now, but I, I do agree that if we engage with technology, we can uh, help create the future. Amazing. I really hope that, uh, hope that you're creating the future. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, this has been an, uh, an interview with Suzanne Kite on the XXFile CKUT 90.3 FM. It is noon on Wednesday, November 22nd. Thank you so much, Suzanne. That was really, really fun and interesting. Thanks for having me. And have a great time in Winnipeg. Oh, yes, I will. Okay. Have a good afternoon. <laughs>